Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as viewers and listeners know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the role of the monarchy in Canadian life following the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, and in particular, how a new approach to the appointment of the monarchy's representatives in Canada can help to modernize its place in modern Canadian society. David, thank you as always for joining me. Such a pleasure. Let's start with something I noticed on social media this week. You attended a service in Washington to mark Queen Elizabeth's life and death. What prompted you to go to the service? And what was it like? Um, this is a service at the National Cathedral in Washington, very near the British Embassy. It was hosted by the British Embassy, and they invited um, friends of the embassy. There must have been some hundreds of people there uh, to come and for a service of Thanksgiving. Uh, it's not a funeral service. The, fun- the, the, the Queen has already had that. Um, this is a, a service of Thanksgiving for her life. Um, it was very much in the Episcopal Anglican tradition, but with a representation from both the U.S. and British military. She was commander-in-chief, of course, of the British military, and um, they have such a close relationship with the United States. Very moving, uh, very inspiring, beautiful music. Um, and the, the, the military representation was impressive. Uh, Vice President Harris attended, and so did Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. I asked that question in part, David, because it sort of captures something that a lot of people in Canada have thought about in the past several days which is that our feelings and sentiments towards the Queen were stronger than we may have appreciated. It makes you wonder how much Canadians were invested in her and how much were invested in the institution. Uh, What's your sense, David? Is there an opportunity in this moment to renew the monarchy's place in Canadian life? The the British monarch has an important place in Canadian life as as a person. And as you say, a lot depends on on that person's character. So it would have been very different if, say, Edward VIII had been able to serve out his term. He died in 1972, I think. If he had been king of Canada uh, through the 60s and 70s, that that would have been very different. He was a not someone who was going to wear well. So her, um, that her and her father, George VI, their, their conscientious personalities, um, their incredible self-effacement, that I think created a especially strong bond. Um, but Canada does have a problem with the role of the, the monarchy in its governing institutions. And that, and that is this. That there was a time when it was really meaningful that the British monarch was head of the Canadian state, meaningful politically and from a governance point of view. For a long time, it has remained important sentimentally, but the role of the monarch has been filled by the governor general, nominally the queen's representative. But actually, 
an appointee of the prime minister of the day. I am worried this has become an increasingly dangerous way of organizing affairs. You know, it was one thing when Canadian elections pretty routinely threw up majority governments at the federal level. Um, the governor general's role then was largely ceremonial, um, and could, the queen came often uh, and could do the big ceremonies, opening you know Olympic games and things like that. Uh, but day in, day out, the governor general would visit the hospitals, recognize people who had done distinguished things, um, and it was not going to be happened very often that the governor general was going to be confronted with. A prime minister saying, I don't need to have a lead, an election right now, and a leader of the opposition saying, yes, you do, and the governor general being the person to make that arbitration. But as Canada has evolved from two big parties and one small party to a true multi-party system, these kinds of constitutional live fire exercises, I think, are very much in the Canadian future. And there will be, we have seen some in recent years, some of these hard choices, I think more, I fear, more are coming. I imagine more are coming. And it's not going to be good enough to have that decision made by a person who's got the job because they were appointed by perhaps the sitting prime minister or, or maybe one back. So, you know, if, if you're going to have the monarchical system, there has to be a new way to pick the governor general. There's some tremendous insight there, David. As you know, in the context of the last federal election, there was a, a lot of discussion that in the event of a minority parliament in which the Conservative Party had a plurality of seats, uh, whether we would follow typical convention and permit the winning party to test the confidence of the House, or could we see something you know, which would be reflected in the institutions, but uh, something ahistorical, which is the permission to the non-winning party to try to first test the confidence of the House. So I, I think you're right that the institution of the Governor General uh, which is typically ceremonial or symbolic, could in the current political context have a much more practical role in our adjudicating our politics, which begs the question, how do you think we ought to change the appointment of the governor general at the national level and the lieutenant governors at the provincial level to, in effect, purchase greater broad-based legitimacy in the event that he or she has to uh, weigh into these political matters? Yeah. I've a lot of ideas. I don't know that any of my ideas are particularly good. Um, but just to give you an idea, you obviously you do, want, do not want the governor general directly elected by the people because then that person has to become the chief executive of the country. Um, and you, you've moved then to a presidential system and presidential systems are poor, make poor graphs onto parliamentary trunks. So that's out. On the other hand, it's clearly not right that, that it be a discretionary position by the prime minister even if the prime minister has the best will in the world, because the prime minister is choosing right now, maybe you get somebody with tact and constitutional awareness, but recent, but recent governor generals have been chosen by, for their attractive personalities, for their media familiarity, for their representation of women and other uh, or underrepresented groups in the society. It's unrealistic to suspect that, to expect that person also to have constitutional expertise. And, and I don't think the recent ones have had. So here, an idea, um, a secret vote, in um, in the Canadian Senate, with maybe nomination, maybe each of the party leaders nominate somebody, and then there's a secret ballot. Maybe there's some there's some nominating system. Maybe the members of the Order of Canada get to nominate. Um, but people who have who have some there, there needs to be some kind of system of consultation and check, so that when the time comes, and as you say, the government is saying we don't, you know, we want to meet the House before going to an election, and the opposition is saying, no, we have to have an election. There is someone who commands some trust and confidence who can arbitrate this decision based on more than whim. 
I suppose viewers and listeners who might object to this idea would argue, David, that bestowing some legitimacy on this role through the form of a, a vote, however democratic, may change the character of the institution and in effect lead to a kind of more activist governor general or lieutenant governor general. And I, I raised that in the context of some controversy in the province of Alberta, where the, the current LG has signaled that she might not be prepared to provide royal assent to the Alberta Sovereignty Act, uh, which is an idea that's been put forward by leadership candidate Daniel Smith in the United Conservative Party leadership. I don't want to get into the, the weeds of that necessarily, but but what would you say to that response? So I would say the lieutenant governor in Canada, the lieutenant governors and the governor general have very different histories and very different purposes. The lieutenant governor always was and was designed to be an instrument of the national government's will inside the province. So in a way, the algae on Alberta, and I've been following the story, ironically, is much more in line with the way Canadian constitutional arrangements were intended to work by their architects. That, in fact, Johnny MacDonald imagined, never mind an attack on the Constitution, I just don't like what you're doing. I don't like your budget. Um, you're spending too much on this and not enough on that. And my representative in the province will overrule you as a matter of politic, political will. Now, that's that's not feasible. So the LG, it bothers me less that the LG is a pure instrument of the choice of the prime minister of the day. That That's the scheme. And then they need tact and sense. And, and then it's politics. And then they're either right, you know, if they do something. But, but sometimes what happens in these situations is they understand that um, an ambitious politician is running ahead of public opinion and the LG can, can stop them. I'm not shocked by that. I think that's normal politics. But the, um, and that is not leading to any kind of institutional crisis. But the governor general, that was a re- that look, from the Canadian Confederation until the Second World War, uh, the governor general was either a member of the British royal family or someone very close to the British royal family who could in some way and who was imbued with the ethos and who would in some way do what the monarch did based on the monarch's charismatic prestige in a way that would be honored. Now, since then, there were a series of very stately, grave Canadians, usually like uh, Vincent Massey, people with um, maybe military records, again, had some kind of derived charismatic prestige. Um, but right now, when if, if there's a power struggle and the, the governor general intercedes, it, it's going to be like, you know, Justice Alito in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's going to be, yes, I have this power, but it, I don't have assent because I don't have a basis for it. And the, the problem is a lot of these decisions are inherently pretty arbitrary. Should there be an election? I mean, you can consult the books, but, the, but by definition, these are novel situations. And so they depend on tact and precedent and broad agreement that this person is above politics. And, will, um, and so is making this toy, coin toss decision at least is not carrying out the will of any particular politician, isn't beholden to anybody. And you have to have a way. So maybe the election by the Senate is not the right way, but you have to have some way that it's not the will of the prime minister. This is a fascinating conversation, David, that I think reflects an underestimated issue in our politics that may rear its head again in, in the next federal election campaign. So I'm, I'm grateful that you've put it on the table in this moment of some transition. It's certain to recur, I think. At some point in the next 20 years, there is going to be a situation and you're going to have a governor general who doesn't command respect or doesn't command assent. And it's a problem. So yeah, fix it. Fix it now. And I don't think there, there was a time we talked about bringing in a cadet member of the British royal family to do the job. 
Um, I, I don't think that's going to fly anymore. I mean, it's sentimentally attractive and certainly they know how to, they've auditioned for the role, but that's not going to fly. So we need something else. What, what is happening now is it's not just out of date. It is actually dangerous. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me take up a separate yet related topic that's received some political intention in Canada, which is the idea of greater cooperation and integration between Canada and other members of the Commonwealth. It's something that seems to have particular salience with Canadian Conservatives. Former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, for instance, is a major champion, David, of what's known as Kansas, an aspiration for a free trade zone between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. What do you think about this general phenomenon? Is there an opportunity in the aftermath of Brexit and some questions about the U.S. reliability as an ally or a market for Canada to lean into the old Commonwealth system? Or in an age of Canadian diversity, is that impractical as a political proposition? No, it's, it's, it's a category confusion. That similarity of culture, values, history is a great basis for strategic and military partnership. It's a lousy basis for a trading system. And a lot of this is just an attempt. A lot of Canadians got, because they weren't paying a lot of attention, got talked into by their British friends and counterparts into endorsing the Brexit self-harm. And the, the friendship we owed Britain was to say everyone should have bent every sinew to prevent the British from doing this stupid thing. And unfortunately, a lot of their friends gave them bad counsel um, and, and gave them some insurance that, you know, that, yeah, a British free, that Britain could trade, could replace its imports of uh, vegetables and its exports of meat to France, you know, what, 40 miles away with Australia half a world away. And that was never going to happen. So now we're trying to scramble and say, how do we make Brexit less self-harming? And the answer is, they're, they're really, that the, the thing we need to do, Britain's friends need to be leaning on Britain and its EU partners to make the best possible, as close to um, pre-Brexit as possible trading deal. But of course, British fruits and vegetables are going to come from the continent of Europe. British lamb is going to go to the continent of Europe. British banks are much more likely to underwrite bonds from German cities than from Australian cities. <laughs> That's just, geography matters. So I, I'm all for improving strategic cooperation between Australia and New Zealand. Um, I, you know, we, there's a real question why NATO has to be confined to the, I mean, that's the thing if you want to say it, you know, yes, the word A in NATO stands for Atlantic, but we don't say North Atlantic, we say NATO. So why, why isn't Australia and maybe New Zealand a partner in that? And, and especially as we face more strategic competition with, with China, maybe we need new arrangements. And Britain has discovered one th of the consolation prices for, uh, from Brexit has been greater British strategic autonomy. And we've seen that it used very well in Ukraine, and maybe there, there are some problems. But the idea you can do this as a trade basis, that's, that's just, 
That's not how it works. And free market conservatives of all people should know that. So the, the, what, what we owe our British friends is to maybe lean on the Europeans to be less protectionist against them and to try to reconstitute the best possible trading and investment regime between Britain and its natural closest partners on the European continent. If I can stay on the topic of counsel from, from friends, this week, British conservative writer and former European parliamentarian Daniel Hannan wrote in the Washington Examiner that the United States could use a constitutional monarchy. As he put it, quote, in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago raid, Trump's partisans began to argue that he was not just an ordinary citizen. Does it not bear out Orwell's point about the danger of infusing the power and glory in one man? As soon as I read that, I, I knew I wanted to put it to you. How would you respond to Hannon's question? Well, it's a very mischievous article. And, and Hannon is someone who I like and respect very much. Hannon is, uh, has both a very distinguished record as a Trump critic, but also he's a pretty hardcore a libertarian and an enthusiast for traditional Brit and British conservative traditionalist. So that, I think he was, that was sort of a troll. Look, if the United States got a constitutional monarchy, you know they picked the Kardashians to fill the role. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just don't. I, 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 and you know what? It, I don't want to be disrespectful because actually the, the Kardashians are obviously pretty talented people, and and, and maybe. Kim would do a, a good job and like give her 70 years on the throne and she might be as beloved as Queen Elizabeth II was. Um, but he's putting his finger on something that is, which is um, aspects of the American constitutional system have been copied around the world. Um, uh, first, the idea of a written, there had been written constitutions before that, that of the United States, but it, mostly they hadn't worked. Like Corsica had one before the United States. Okay, so this was the first written, enduring written constitution. That gets copied. The federal idea, that proves very powerful. The idea of, of, of a Supreme Court to review the constitutionality of legislation, that has British origins, but it's really the Americans and uh, actually post-constitutionally in the early 19th century where they, they get that going. That's been copied. But the strong, directly elected president, or the, the electoral college is obviously, I mean, there's a funny line, someone in the queue got asked by an American journalist, well, isn't the monarchy pretty irrational? And the queuer said, the electoral college, that's irrational. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the strong president has not been widely emulated. And, and the, 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 there are tensions between the role of the president, and, and this has become a special problem in the modern age, because through most of American history, in peacetime, the president was not, in fact, that powerful. The strong presidents until were the wartime president. You know, Lincoln pushed the office. Woodrow Wilson pushed the office. But until the Great Depression, the presidency remains sort of manageable by the rest of the system. The Great Depression changes that. The need for a regulatory state changes it. But what above all changes it is the need for nuclear, is, is the development of nuclear weapons. And much of the modern presidency is, as an institution, is the development of institutions that can decide, make decisions about civilization ending wars in less than a quarter of an hour. Uh, and so that person has to have a lot of secret information, a lot of arbitrary power. Um, but, and, and that's our problem. It's, it's, not, it's not just, it's the combination of nuclear ballistic missile technology and the inheritance of the presidency. And the Trump experience calls for some deep thinking in, in American life about how to make that work. And I think Trump losing his Mar-a-Lago cases, as I think he will, may do some, something to remind that at least an ex-president reverts to being an ordinary person. And therefore, a current president is more of an ordinary person than the current president has been for a while. 
Let's end our conversation, David, by returning to the monarchy and its future in Canada. There's a view that the monarchy will lose salience in Canada as our population becomes ever more diverse and sentimentality about the country's British heritage diminishes. But I wonder if actually the opposite may be true, that in an era in which there are fewer shared institutions and ideas, that Canadians may strengthen their common commitment to the monarchy. What do you think? Is heterogeneity counterintuitively good for the future of the monarchy in Canada? Yeah, I think people are being sentimental about Canadian history. The monarchy was was a less unifying institution than, than people remember because people have this idea, okay, well, oh, we were all, in, in those days, outside of Quebec, everybody was British and therefore they were harmonious. And let's remember, Britain is a country wrapped by civil wars through the period of, of the settlement of North America. And a lot of the point of the monarchy in Canada in, say, 1920, uh, was as a way for United Kingdom immigrants from Northern Ireland to rub it in the noses of United Kingdom immigrants from Southern Ireland, <laughs> for uh, Anglicans to rub it in the noses of Methodists, or Anglicans and Methodists to rub it in the noses of, of Presbyterians and Baptists. The mere fact they were all from Britain didn't mean that they were all on a single page. And I think one of the most, I think to me, heartwarming moments in the um, memorialization of the late queen was the extraordinary tributes paid to her on the island of Hong Kong or the, the, the former British colony of Hong Kong, where people who are not of British ethnic origin, not maybe not even English speakers, said, we associate this system with greater freedom than we have now. And um, I think many, as we've seen, that did she, that this woman, and we'll see how it is with her son, um, touched the hearts of people of many different backgrounds. And um, so I think the, the sentimental hold may remain great, but you, you, it'll be very hard to rewire Canadian institutions to get the crown out of them. And that probably is, the crown is always going to be there, whether the moniker is not. And the crown is there in the office of the governor general in ways that are potentially dangerous. So Canada needs to find a way to domesticate the crown more securely. And indeed, that the Brit- that ca- Canadians who that the distancing from the monarchy, has, which was supposed to min- diminish the crown, actually had a role, role in maximizing the crown and making the crown a less stable element in the Canadian state. This has been a fascinating conversation, as it always is, David. You've put some, I think, real food for thought on the table that, as I mentioned earlier, is going, I think, underexplored in our mainstream discourse and will bite if we don't take preemptive action. I want to thank you for joining me uh, for another episode of From Dialogues, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.